0: Love, Hope, Radio.
1: Tune in to conversations with Dr. D. Ivana Happy Lunchtime, America. Today is July 31st, 2013. You're listening to Conversations with Dr. D. Yvonne Young, and this is yours truly. Today we have a program that hits very, very close to home for me. Um, I know any of you that have, uh, for any amount of time, read my books or seen me speak in person or on television or via radio you heard me mention that, well, more than likely you've heard me mention that I'm an only child, I'm adopted, that both my parents are deceased. Well, what I don't share is a great deal of how that has affected my life. The things that I don't share is, like many of you, I know what it's like to wake up not just once or twice in life and ask myself, you know, what the hell has happened, you know, what is going on with me? Why are some of these crazy situations and things the way they are? You know, and and what I mean by that is simply this. We find ourselves in quagmires um, that we don't create. Life can definitely deal us some cards. And when we open uh, open the hand and look at what we've been dealt, there are no queens. There are no jacks. There's probably one joker and a bunch of really, really bad <laughs> cards in the that you're sitting there holding that you did not ask for, that you probably don't deserve, and you did not earn. Well, I want to say this. The very things that have been the source of so much c- discontent, so much pain, the things that I... Shook my fist up and and looking into the heavens. And, you know, I'm not going to say I did anything as stupid as to curse God or to say anything crazy, but I will be honest with you and hopefully be transparent. I was pissed the heck off at God. Yes, I actually said that. I was pissed. I was, I, I figured, you know, I really haven't been that bad of a guy, have I? Why? Am I looking at my life I don't have a significant other um, why is it when my mother died all these all this money and stuff gets embezzled people that aren't even related to me changed a will or why is it at my father's right after his funeral one of his greedy relatives walks up and tells me I'm not his child you know which I knew that I'm adopted so that was obvious but when I look at all of these things that have happened in my life I must be totally honest with you and say that as sick and as grieving and as uh, frustrated as I was, there was a blessing inside of each one of those things that I thought to be a curse or to be the rug being pulled out from under me mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. Well, today we're going to talk about things that go way beyond the seven stages of grief. We're going to also talk about the why of it. So if you in your life have lost someone because they walked out the door or were rolled out the door, if you have had to start over again, if you've asked yourself this question, why me, why in the hell, is this happening to me today? We're going to change that. We're going to ask a new question, and that question is, why not you? Did you know that the very things in life that you feel were meant to curse you are going to be the exact same tools, the very stepping stones that God is going to use to bless you? So, with all of that stage being set, and sorry for the long takeoff, but this is really going to be a deep show, um, my producer, uh, Julia, put together something really wonderful today. She got in contact with two people that have so much to share that I don't know how we're going to cram this wealth of information into an hour. Uh, we, If you want to send some comments, please do so by uh, engaging our chat rooms or you know, calling in or whatever, but we may or may not be able to get to your call because a lot of this information, I feel, needs to get out there. There's a lot that you're going to learn, and more than anything, if you are a person that has lost someone, especially to disease or death or something like that, uh, whether it was anticipated or whether it was something that was taking place in chronic over a long period of time, today's program is just for you. With all of that said, I want to dedicate this program to my late mother, whose birthday was July the 25th. Happy birthday, Mom. I know you're looking down on us. And to all of you who have lost loved ones, I'd like to dedicate this program to you and to that person that touched and meant so much to your life. So with that said, I'm going to ask Julia. Julia, would you please tell us about our first guest and bring her on?
2: Yes. Up first, we have um, a nationally recognized speaker and award-winning writer and journalist, Diane Gray. She's the president of the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross Foundation and also president of Hospice and Healthcare Communications. She's currently producing a documentary on end-of-life care for PBS, and wherever she goes, Diane says she sits bedside with the ill and dying, and she sees her family's end-of-life experience with her son, Austin, as a gift of a lifetime.
1: Wow. Hey, uh, Diane, uh, are you there?
2: I am.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Oh, man, thank you. I uh, Typically when I do a program, um, a lot of it is me trying to educate and inform the public. Seldom do I do things that, are, and I'm, I'm going to be so transparent right now, that are probably things that I've avoided dealing with myself. Uh, most Americans and most people around the world, when we we get up every day, we get in the mirror, we put our game face on, and we run out the door acting as if everything is okay because we're going to hold it together come hell of high water. And people like you are the people that God uses to see through our bullcrap. People like you are the people that walk into our homes and allow people to be human, to have feelings and be transparent. So with all of that said, Diane, tell us about you, what you do, and even over why you do it.
0: Sure, I'm I'm happy to. um, You know, I think when someone goes online and they read about, you know, my bio or background and they say, oh, my gosh, you... You lost a child, and my son died of a rare neurodegenerative brain disorder when he was 14 years old, and that makes it sound like it was a single event, but he was sick, actually, for 12 years, uh, very sick, and he suffered significantly. But, you know, if if we go back in, you know, not just my history, but I think this is true for everyone, including yourself, You you touched upon it. Um, I think we all have what we call invisible losses, which is where I started this conversation with Julia a few weeks ago. Um, You know, my father died when I was nine years old. He was 39. He had a heart attack. And uh, it was a couple of days right after Christmas. And, um, you know, that started this association with really trying to understand not just my loss, but other people's losses, but also connection and transcendent love that can occur through loss. So I feel as though my life has been both uh, hammered (laughs) but also blessed significantly through these uh, life lessons and these losses. Um, And so through that trajectory, one Growth and one loss and one growth and one loss led to the next and the next, and as well, opportunities came and so I started my business uh, i I was in the publishing business for quite a few years with a hospice niche publisher, and uh, you know had the opportunity to start my own communications business, hospice and healthcare communications, but also partnered with this publishing business and through that work. And now, subsequently, as the head of the Elizabeth Kubler Ross Foundation, I've found that loss, which includes love, is the most incredible unifier. Which is how I met, you know, your second guest. And um, I just think that when, if I were to walk into your home, you know, anyone's home, um, the unifiers that we've all lost in some way, and we've all loved. In some way, and so um, I think that that's kind of where my work is is at this point, as well within hospice care, and of course, talking about medications and suffering and relief and things like that
1: that is uh amazing When you took this journey on, most people ask me they they'll say dr D why you know why do you do what you do? I had someone in my office yesterday, as a matter of fact, a beautiful lady. And she was talking and she said, why did you take this extra time to speak with us? Typically when people go see a therapist or a counselor or a coach, they just put on their little sideshow and say what they're going to say and hopefully you write a check. you know." And I told her, I said, I answer to a much higher power and I'm driven by purpose. I don't just do this for the money. I do this because I want to transform and make an impactful change in somebody's life. Why do you do what you do, Diane?
0: For for the exact same reason. Um have you ever read the book it's uh, by Viktor Frankl. It's called Man's Search for Meaning. And what it and it's uh, Viktor Frankl was a brilliant um psychologist, psychiatrist, uh through the Holocaust, etc. He he went back and researched and studied and he found that people really are searching for meaning in their lives, meaningfulness and for purpose versus just quote, happiness. And I found in my instance that I mean I'll tell you the truth, I after my son died in two thousand five I said, that's it, I'm going to go back into professional sports. I got my degree in sports uh, management, sports medicine, and said, that's it, I'm going back into sports. And doggone, if every time I started to leave this world of hospice and palliative care, somebody would say, hey, will will you give a speech and a presentation at our hospice, or will you come meet with this family or that family? And I found such purpose in not just me sharing my thoughts, but listening, and I found that in sharing compassion with others and meaning being compassionate with them, which is the gift that I received, my life was incredibly blessed and felt um amazingly fulfilled and and that's why I do
1: the, it well the, the two things that that makes me want to ask you about when um I had a um, son, Tremaine, that at 9 years old, he died of leukemia. And I remember prior to his death, he was at Children's Hospital in Dallas, and he had to get a spinal tap. And, you know, at that time, I was, like, totally terrified of needles. And I had no clue how invasive that procedure is. But for those of you that don't know, it is taking a needle that's roughly 5 to 6 inches long and sticking it into your spine and and when he was helping the nurse set the room up and when the, he held my hand he said are you okay and his whole concern was for helping the nurse and am i okay and he reminded me of almost like in the bible uh or in the um uh, uh, where you read in the torah about abraham and his son and abraham's son is preparing this altar for his own sacrifice and saying, well, Daddy, do you want me to get more wood? You know, do I need to put more rocks here? And, you know, and that's exactly what he reminded me of. So I know when your son was diagnosed with NDIA in 1995, um, passed away in 2005, that was a hell of a bootleg paramilitary spiritual training course that God put you in. What would mm-hmm. you say? to those people that are listening to this show in America and the UK and uh, in Canada and and Australia right now, what would you tell these people that are in the midst of losing a child? Because I want to talk about the difference between losing a child, a spouse, and a parent.
0: Um, I'm so glad you asked that question. Thank you. And first of all, you have... Um, to the listeners out there, i'm sure you've listened to this show before, and you've felt um an instance where you said he just said the one thing, how could he know that that was my experience? um My son too, had a spinal tap, and it was the one of three of the worst experiences um during that time. I honestly can't believe he brought it up and i'm and i'm Stunned and happy that you did actually um so what I can share with your listeners is this a it it feels like hell it 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 does it feels like every day you are waking up and you are reliving are you that um that incredible are you sure this is true? No, no, maybe it's a mistake oh yes it it still is you know the diagnosis that we thought and through walking that path where at times i think most parents feel a sense of a god take me just take me i'm going to prepare myself take me and please give my child life and you wake up and you think are you kidding i'm still here ha- hello you know um but i i want to assure your listeners i feel god is listening the second thing is something that I just shared with your producer Julia, which um, I sat with my friend um, Cheryl Cooper, who was Alice Cooper's wife, uh, a couple months ago, and I we were talking about different things, and I said Cheryl, you know, I just I don't I don't understand this or that, and Cheryl said Diane, parentheses silly girl, <laughs> she said, listen, where does root grow? And I looked at her because we were absolutely not talking about agriculture. (laughs) And she said, Mm -hmm. it it grows in the valleys. It doesn't grow on the mountaintops. And she stopped. Wow. Long enough to let me think. And I said, oh. And I was sharing with Julia, that is true. I think our greatest opportunities for spiritual growth, for uh, refining our souls, is through the endurance of suffering and the observation of suffering, not through all of those joyous moments. And I do think there are peaks and valleys, and I do believe that God gives us rest. And I do believe that when we are the most weary, that this uh, spiritual wind comes underneath us and carries us for a little while. And sure, we plummet again, But alas, finally, my third point is you won't die. Caregivers, parents, family members, loved ones, because your child dies, it may feel like it, but you will not die. You have a choice to make. You have a choice to make to get up every morning and just walk to the shower. That's all you have to do for that day is get into the shower. And then the next week, Maybe you want to get to the shower and go to the grocery store. And through that, there will be moments, I promise each of you, where you have an opportunity to say yes to something that is you will feel is calling you that speaks to your spirit, whether it is volunteering at a school, whether it is washing a neighbor's car, whether it is walking your dog, whether it is starting a program, starting a company, participating in outreach, there are going to be opportunities to say yes to life again. And they will come at moments that you just do not you know, understand, but they will occur.
1: Wow, that is really beautiful. Uh, we're here... Um, in- Talking about a subject that I think all of us unfortunately need to talk about with Diane Gray, President of Hospice and Healthcare Communications. Uh, Diane, we're going to take a 45 second break, and right after the break, I want to come back and talk about some of these experiences that you've had um, sitting bedside with uh, families in a hospice type situation. America, you're listening to conversations with Dr. D. Yvonne Young. We'll be right back in about 45 seconds. This is Dr. D. Yvonne Young. You're listening to Conversations with D. Yvonne Young, and I'm on with my guest, Diane Gray. Uh, we're talking about transitioning and uh, the strength and the beauty of a very ugly situation. Diane, when you're sitting there with a family going through what is probably the worst or what they would think is the worst season in their lives, what do you learn from that and tell us the things that you can share from these experiences that can help some of us who are now dealing with a loved one with dementia or Alzheimer's or cancer. What is it that you're learning as you watch people go from the darkness to the light?
0: Wow, that's a that's a great question. Um, one of the things that I've learned is that we tend typically, and especially Americans, we tend to see the death of an individual as a loss of connection with that loved one. And I don't believe that's true. Uh, I believe that uh, just because the human life dies or ends, um, the relationship does not. You know, your mother is still your mother. You are still someone's son. You will always be someone's son. You will always be a parent. I will always be a parent. My relationship with my children did not end just because my son died. Um, that relationship can, can continue if you talk to them, write to them, think of them, um, and and many 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 people report that you know, Diane, I got a sign. Is this a sign? Is that a sign? And uh, it's not for me to determine what is a sign. If you feel it's a sign, it's a sign. If it's something that's important to you and you feel it's a message, it's a message. There's no one to debate that. Second of all, during the hospice experience, um, many people feel, I, I hear this bedside, and do everything we can. We want to do everything we can. Well, what does that mean at all costs? How, how, long, how many tubes? What's the magic number? How many surgeries? How many tubes? How many years? How many 16 days past their 80th birthday? Is that the magic number? I think we really need to listen more to the requests of the patient. And, and secondly, you asked about Alzheimer's and, and dementia patients. I really feel that it's to me one of the most difficult situations for caregivers. It is so hard and I really believe out there that we need to embrace these caregivers as much as we do the patients of, of Alzheimer's and dementia um patients because these caregivers are are, are walking a journey that is incredibly incredibly difficult um and and i think as as a as a global community we really need to do more to reach out to these families cook meals for them pray for them pray for them at a distance if you don't know them uh send cards just whatever we can do to help the caregivers through this and, and obviously as well the patients um
1: okay and, finally, and i want to go to this I'm sorry for interrupting you. No, go ahead. i just go to this. Often people going through such a dilemma confuse the quality of life with the quantity of life. There is a point in time that we have to come to the conclusion, are we being so selfish and holding on to someone that needs to transition and that's ready to transition only because we don't want to let mama go we don't want to let that husband or that wife go we don't want to let our child go my question to you diane is when is the right time or is there i know it's never going to be an easy time but in your view when is the right time to simply allow nature to take its course
0: that that's a great question, and um, and I want to preface my response to you, with a with a a very um intimate response, which is I had to walk that journey. So the response that I'm giving is not one that I read out of a textbook, but it's one that I lived. Um, my son, at the end of his life, um, was, you know, he was just digressing, 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 and we had to make the decision did we or did we not want to remove nutrition and hydration as it was allowed through hospice care and, and it was hospice-guided. Um, and it, it, it for me, um, a few things happened. One of them is I had read this quote years ago and I didn't understand it at the time by Mother Teresa, and it says, I have found the paradox that if you love until it hurts, there can be no more hurt, only more love. I loved my son so much, and I wanted my son, obviously, to be with me forever. Never did I want to separate from him, and never did I want to end his life. But there got to be a point where I realized that his being here on this earth would only continue his suffering. And he was suffering. He would go through bouts of significant pain and significant suffering. So I made that decision uh, with hospice's help and with my church's help and with the ethics council. I mean, I put myself through you know, rigors and, and asked people I didn't know through my, my church council and the ethics committee. And we made that decision. I would say that there comes a time you will know. If you're really honest with yourself, there comes a time when you sit down and it's quiet and you pray and you ask for response and if you're not a religious person you can still meditate and listen and get that guidance and say hey i am prolonging someone else's life just for me this is not going to turn around and i and i, I have heard that from countless hundreds hundreds thousands of families <gasps> that they finally one day realized that they were not going to get out of this situation with their loved one alive. And so the focus came on providing comfort versus cure.
1: That is so true. We do not realize that when we do such things, we're delaying that person moving on to the greater unknown because what we're living in is the lesser known and where god is where destiny and where the universal greeting lies is in the greater unknown we're going to take a quick break uh I Diana do want you to hang around we're going to start we're going to also uh, a little bit later talk about loss and and dealing with uh, The same pain, breakups, and divorce. But we have another guest we'll be bringing on right after the break. Our producer Julia will be on to introduce her. You're listening to Conversations with Dr. D. Yvonne Young. We'll be right back. Talking about a subject that none of us will escape, and that is the ebb and flow of life, the process of going through grief and separation. I'm going to just do a quick thing before uh, Julia brings our next guest, introduces our next guest. There are seven stages of grief. This is, and you're not going to necessarily go through them all at one time, but I just want to point them out. They're shock and denial, meaning you you will probably react to learning about. Uh, the information either concerning loss or separation. And the first thing that you do is you are really hit over the head with it. You're overwhelmed. This can last for weeks. The next one is pain and guilt. And that's when the shocks wear off. It's replaced with the suffering of unbelievable pain. And it's also unbearable. You, uh, For many of you, this pain and guilt may produce guilty feelings or remorse of all the things you could have, should have, or wish you had done. But this is when the story starts to unfold. And then we start dealing with anger or, or we start, if it's something that's terminal bargaining, trying to see if we can negotiate our way past these things when, in fact, we can't. And the next stage is that depression and the reflection and the loneliness that we go through having to accept the inevitable. But I'm telling you, it's okay. Don't let the sadness overtake you because it's during this time that you actually begin the healing process. You begin to accept and understand that, you know what, there was a purpose that was greater than what I could see in this there's some meaning behind this thing. And that's when that fifth stage, when you turn up and you, at that point, come in contact with something greater than yourself, at least most of you will. And those last couple of stages is the reconstruction and working through it. And finally, after the right amount of time goes by, because there is no number, there's no three weeks, there's no four months, there's no year, All of us go through this differently, but at the end of it, we work through it, we accept it, and we get our hope back. With that said, my next guest, uh, Julia, would you introduce her because I think her whole story is somewhat like Diane's. It's about hope and acceptance and transformation. Who do we have, Julia? Julia?
2: Yes, we all know actress Alicia Coppola from NBC's popular series Jericho from her award-winning role of Lorna on NBC's Another World, and she currently stars in MTV's Teen Wolf. Now, while she's played many notable roles, one of her most important was her real-life role of honoring her father's memory in her new book, Gracefully Gone.
1: Wow. Hi, Alicia. How are you?
3: I am I am so well and I'm so privileged to be on your show. I don't know how to follow Diane. That's rough.
1: <laughs> well, I can tell you. I just finished reading some of the content in your book. Uh my both my parents uh mother had macular degenerative disease and uh Parkinson's and also later cancer developed. But my father had pancreatic and colon cancer. And I was reading in the book about your father and the things when he went to see the neurologist, and and they're just the things that really stood out to me when you mentioned the Natalie Cole thing about Natalie uh, doing Unforgettable and the duet with her late father, Nat King Cole and i was just thinking about you were, one i want to tell you alicia you are really a great writer um i was i was even laughing when you were talking about your swimsuit and you felt like a stick figure with, <laughs> with a splotch on that was really funny but when when i read this there's three things that came to my mind one you painted the picture Almost like with martin luther king 's letter from Birmingham Jail with the exos and pathos and logos and all of this you you became the daughter, you were the witness, you were the the wise sage, you were also the hero and the victim and, and when you were writing, I was examining. The And I think this was so brilliant how you did this. How you let your father's voice be heard where you, I think your father was a model. And, and when, I, when I'm looking at this story unfold, I just go back to this little girl and this meeting you. And I go back to this little girl that said, you know, my first boyfriend was my dad. So I'd like to start this conversation from the dynamic of what – was your life like as it relates to having your first love become the, I guess, the best and worst part of a season of your life?
3: Wow. Um, I'd like to answer that by actually quoting you. You said in the beginning of the show that that which curses us will later be the very thing that blesses us and that really touched me because growing up my father was he was the paradigm to which as a as a young adult and then as an adult woman I have held all other men in comparison uh be they friends or lovers or my husband um and having that kind of idyllic childhood with my dad and my mom and my brother it was it was wonderful it i think you know Every child would have wanted to have the childhood that I had. After that moment, though, when I became 12 and my father was diagnosed, um, everything changed. Everything just utterly changed. And I knew at that moment that my life, previously, I would never have that again. And when so, you
1: say everything changed, what do you mean by that? Paint a picture for us.
3: My family always had dinner together. It was the one thing that we we always did. We always sat around in our kitchen and we had dinner after Mom and Dad came home and had their scotch and sodas so that my brother and I would get out of their hair and they would, you know, reconvene and talk about their day and then we would all sit around and, and have whatever Mom cooked. In that moment, the moment when I heard that my father had brain cancer and was going into the hospital... As May Sarton says, all had utterly changed, and a terrible beauty was born. It just changed. In five minutes, everything that I knew was no longer. And everything that I feared in that moment, I knew my life was going to be. So it was no more carefree, I have no worries, um, I go to school, I come home, I swim, I hang out with my friends, my brother and I play, my father tickles us. You know, it was no more, no more. It became my brother was going to be making grilled cheese sandwiches for us. He was 8 years old. That's what we ate. It would be me learning to drive at 13 because I had to get my brother somewhere. It became um, very difficult for me to go to school because I would see the carefree life that my friends were having, which is what I had, which I no longer had. And nobody really knew how to talk to me, because how do you, how do you, at 12 years old, you're completely ill-equipped to deal with anything other than lip gloss and voice. So nobody knew how to befriend me. And so that's what I Alicia, mean by everything I've, changed.
1: I've got to ask you a question, Alicia. Um, when I look at this, as a, you know, I do a great deal of speaking, and I've learned that some of my greatest venues are when I'm on a small stage with an intimate room of 10 people. So I've been in front of audiences as large as five or 6,000 people or, you know, speaking on certain radio programs, talking to millions, but my most intimate stage has been speaking to this small group of people. When I do that, I find that it reminds me of television versus the theater. You know, in the theater, you have this large ambient audience and this venue that it has historical significance on most occasions. And I'm looking and, and I'm picturing you playing some of these roles that you played on TV. Have you had these places where art, has come in contact with life, and you looked at how um, how you have been able to translate, even in Teen Wolf or in the soaps that you've been on. What ha- how have you made a connection between what happened in your real life versus what's put on that screen?
3: Well, I think when I uh, when my dad died. I immediately went on to a soap opera called Another World, and about a year in, um, they had my father on the show die, uh, and wow. they had me, yeah, and they had me sitting at his deathbed, and um, that was really, really very difficult. And I didn't, I kind of was a little mad because they knew what I was coming from. And so I was like, gosh, I I don't know if I'm going to, A, be able to pull this off, and B, why? Why do I want to do this again? But I found it, actually, in a strange way. Not only was it, you know, cathartic, because I got to get out certain feelings, but I actually, in that moment with my father, Lucas, who was played by John Aprea, I actually got to grieve for me. And that was the one thing that I hadn't done yet. I, I was too angry at the time when my father died. I was just a really angry, you know, 22-year-old girl. Um, and I never had an opportunity to actually feel sorry for myself, if that makes any sense. I was too busy with my brother and my mother and, 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 and throwing myself into my work. Um, that in, in those scenes, I actually did get to grieve for myself. And in touching Lucas, I was able to touch my father. Because I wasn't there when my father ultimately took his last breath. I was on the phone. You know, who knows when you're making a call that your dad's going to die at that exact moment. But with Lucas, <clears throat> I was actually right there when he did. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I was able to kind of go through it again in the way I wanted to go through it with my father.
1: Alicia, um, I- I've got to ask a question. Um, you, as a professional successful woman, you are able to take the lemons that life gave you and make a beautiful lemon souffle as well as lemon for a parfait and lemonade and all of this stuff (laughs) from these really sour aspects of life. What would you say to the men and women that are the millions of people that are going to hear this show over today and over probably in its archive form, what would you tell them that most resonated with you and something that they could use in their lives to be able to take their hurt and their pain to their social, to their civic, or to even their professional environment and have it be a point of transformation rather than a point of devastation? Wow,
3: that's a great question. Um, The one thing, the one thing that was with me when I was a child and is still with me is the concept of once a door closes and a person walks into their home and closes that door, we, we don't know what they're going to. And when they come out of that door and they go to work or they go to school or they just go about their daily life, we don't know what they're coming from. And I wished that when I was a little girl, there were more people who maybe were kinder, maybe more gentle, maybe asked if there was something they could do for me, maybe not so much what they could do for my dad, and I don't mean that to be in a selfish way, but Obviously, my father's path was going the way that it was going to go, and there was really nothing to do to stop it. Um, And I feel that we all, as people, are responsible for each other, whether it's a person you meet on the street, you meet them on the train, wherever they are, and just to smile, just to bring some kind of joy to a person, if you know them or not, because, again, you don't know what they're going home to and you don't know what they've come from. And I know it sounds big, but I think if we could all maybe just take that responsibility for each other, especially for people that you know are going through an illness and being a caregiver, because there is nothing more difficult in this world than doing that. I think if we could do that, it would be a much nicer place to live.
1: I totally agree with you. There was something that I read uh, when I was perusing an excerpt from the book, and your father made a comment. He said that um, never in his life had he felt or experienced impotence until Mm -hmm. that diagnosis came, and he came home that night, and he had seen the neurosurgeon and and uh, I think the the chief of neurology, and they Told him that you know I can get this thing out. We got good news and bad news. There's an anomaly present. That's the bad news. The good news, it's in an accessible place. And he went home that night, and he was going to, He wanted to be intimate with your mother, and he couldn't. Do you feel that just as that? And I'm I'm saying this to kind of correlate this to the Natalie Cole Nat King Cole duet and the duet of you and your father. Did you ever feel an impotency that was associated with you mentally or emotionally where this thing, even though it had passed for weeks, days, or even months or years, where you were incapacitated and just could not function?
3: Yes, many times. Um,
1: Tell us about it.
3: After the... Well... There are moments, there are moments that I am just brought to my knees by my missing my father. Um, and there are moments where I realize that it it, it, it had changed me so much that I, I, um, I used to be very, ha- well, not that I'm not a happy and hopeful, you know, fun gal, I am, but there are moments of great, great darkness. And after the birth of my third child, Greta, I went into a severe postpartum depression where I simply, as Diane said before, just to get up and take a shower was simply too much for me to do, just to get out of my bed and get into the – I couldn't find my way from my bedroom to my kitchen, and I live in a tiny home. Um, I was completely incapacitated, and I understood at that moment – I think I understood in my soul perhaps what my father might have felt like because
1: no.
3: you, I felt, this is what I felt like, I felt like I was walking down the street and it was a bright sunny day and everything was nice and I was window shopping and I was looking forward to having my baby and then this big van with blacked out windows comes up and like six guys come and kidnap me and throw blankets on me and shove me in the in the trunk of the car. And that's what I felt like for a year. And especially at the end of the book where my father talks about right before, you know, right as he was going in through treatment and and radiation and how he was able his last day of treatment when he knew he was going in and he was not going to have to get chemotherapy, he put on his suit because he needed to celebrate the fact that, he wasn't going to wear the same sweatpants over and over again for the past month, and that he was coming out of something and going into uh, transitioning in, into remission and into having his life again. So he, you know, so we all thought that's what I felt like when I was coming out of my postpartum. But I think I understood is, for a minute what my father felt.
1: That is something. Uh, we're we're in America. We're going to skip taking our last break. Uh, I definitely want to bring Diane back on at this point, if I may. Diane, are you there?
0: I am, thank you. And a lovely, Alicia, just lovely account of your life. I'm so, gosh, uh, it, it just resonates. I think not just for myself, but I'm sure for you know the, the millions of people that are listening. Oh,
1: now you. Diane, I, I want to go here because I want to help. Uh, this audience, this global audience that we have, because this is definitely not an American thing. This is a human humanity thing. Uh, I alluded to seven stages of grief in the psychological model, but I know that you have a five stages of grief model. And what the reason I asked Alicia the question was because I wanted uh, people to understand that no matter how much notoriety you have, how much fame or money you have, we are all susceptible to pain and to anguish and to despair and to frustration and to bitterness and to depression. So would you educate us about your five-stage of grief model, please?
0: Sure. And, and I... I would love to take credit for the five stages, but actually Elizabeth Kubler-Ross developed the five stages. She, um, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, for those of you that don't know who she is, was one of the original pioneers of hospice, and she was a psychiatrist, Swiss-born psychiatrist, and I'm the president now of the foundation that bears her name. So the five stages were denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Those five stages and I I'm really glad you asked the question, so thank you because I want to clear this up. People expect that they are going to enter into the five stages and that it's linear. First they're gonna feel this and then they're gonna feel that, and then they'll bargaining and then depression and then acceptance. Elizabeth Kubler Russ interviewed uh several hundred dying patients and she found these um emotions that people were feeling That corresponded with what she labeled denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. DABDA is the acronym. But Elizabeth was really clear. Not every person experiences all five of her quote stages. Some people experience denial, they skip anger, maybe they go to depression, maybe they get to acceptance and then they go back. It's not linear, there is no time limit, there is no time frame. And I think, too, you know, a lot of people have uh, tried to place themselves as the new founder of whatever these you know, we get email all the time at the foundation. There are 11 stages. There are four stages. There are no stages. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross interviewed dying people. Eventually, she was asked, you know, plenty of times, do these apply to the grieving as well? Do they apply to those who have lost uh, um a loved one through divorce or through the loss of a job. Or you can Google it now and you'll see how the five stages are applied to the end of a football game or to car shopping. It amuses me. But the gist of it is that the five stages are just a framework for people to understand emotions they might be feeling and that there is no specific timeline nor, nor a direct linear framework. Does that help?
1: Yeah, yeah. Because I, I wanted to uh, speak to this, and, and I'm speaking to this uh, from two different places. One as a clinician, and one as a person that has been through this stuff. The first thing that I like to do with any word is break down the noun and the verb form. And isn't it just ironic that in today's show, that with Alicia being present, this is so appropriate that is also a place where we present a performance. It is a place where we can utilize a platform to demonstrate or convey a message, right? And in the noun form, a stage is a point of period a step in a process of development. And I'm saying that to say this, that we can use these very circumstances as a platform. We can use this in the same way that uh, the opera singer would use the X and center stage of an opera house to be able to authenticate to others that it's not over. If anything, this is a new beginning. I am a firm believer uh, personally that our creator does not take someone out of our lives until their purpose has been fulfilled. Now, of course, there's always, you know, the the mischievousness of mankind when someone decides to take their life because they thought they ran out of options or, you know, some horrendous um, act of violence takes place. But I'm talking about, and even in those circumstances, our creator makes lemonade out of those lemons for us if we look deep enough. What I want to, uh, at this point, ask, and I want to ask both of you a question, and if you could give me about a one-minute answer, then I would like both of you to provide contact information so people could reach out to you. But my first question is for Diane. Um, you, this little, uh, this little beautiful baby boy you had, the little blonde-haired uh, boy with those mm-hmm. big eyes. What is it in eternity? that you can see if you were looking in his uh, eyes right now and you're looking at this little green-eyed for you, you go back to the point of diagnosis, what would you think that Austin would have you tell America right now?
0: Mm, lovely question. Um, a few. Wow, that's a great question. Uh, a few things. First of all, that it's about love not possessions. At that time, we had uh, everything a family could want. We had a beautiful home. We were successful. Anything we had could not alter the course or the trajectory of his disease. But what we gained were riches beyond. I had time to really stare into his eyes and smell his skin and touch his hair and do crazy silly things like I put him in his jogger and we ran down the beach with his O2 tank on my back. So I think his message would be to enjoy moments. I think his other message would be to offer simple kindness to our loved ones and complete strangers alike. I think his message would be to take the long view in life, which would be not to get so caught up in just singular moments of disharmony or injustice. Take the long view. Step back. Um, I believe completely that um, Austin was a child of God. I think there was a message and a meaning to his life, and I think that's true for all of us. I think he would share that. And I think that he would really want all of us to take the opportunity to say yes to whatever fills our heart with uh, happiness and joy. If it's, you know, getting in the kitchen, which he liked to do, even in his wheelchair. Um, and, And in the last few seconds, I'll share a quick story as I knew that Austin was nearing the end of his ability to speak, I asked him, I said, Austin, what would you like to do, honey? Do you do you want to go to Disney World? Do you want to meet Buzz Lightyear? What would you like to do? I, I needed to know because he was losing the ability to speak clearly so that I could understand him as part of his disease. And he said, I want to see the inside the refrigerator. Oh, I was wow. aghast. My very adult self had all these big dreams, but Austin wanted to see inside the refrigerator because he could no longer get himself there, and we used to spend years cooking together food for thought
1: that that is so profound um Lucia, you know, I have a very similar um thing that I want to ask you. There was a point when your mother knew some information about uh, the options of chemotherapy and all this stuff for your dad and and the way that most strong women do. You know, they come in, they talk to your dad about chemo, and then they talk to your dad about taking these pills for a year and a half and uh, possibly having to take the combination of the two. And your mother sat there knowing your dad's options, which infers to me, it doesn't say it in the, the, what I've read, but it inferred to me that she always knew a bit more than she let on, and she carried this weight on her shoulders, and much to herself to the point that uh, and, and, uh, and the book that, you know, she came home, made herself a drink, and just passed out, basically, because she was overwhelmed. What would you say, Alicia, to the women and the men that are listening that have had that scotch and soda, they passed out, but they still have not gotten any rest. How would you tell them, Alicia, to get some peace in the middle of a storm?
3: Mm. Wow. I remember that night. I remember my brother and I, the next morning, we had to
1: drag her.
3: We had to just get her up and get her going bring her into the shower um, I think you're right about m- my mother I think she always was I think she protected my father um, in the same way that he he protected her as well um, but they loved each other and that's what I guess they did for each other um, I think that in any dark situation in life it doesn't just have to be about disease um, and caregiving Um I think that when there is darkness, complete darkness, and people are looking for some kind of release or some kind of peaceful moment, I think we have to remember, um, as I often do, and I especially did during my, my depression after my baby was born, that if you could just hold tight, just just sit tight and not bump into too many things, that there will be a sliver of light somewhere. God, God doesn't keep you in the dark for that long. I just, I just don't think God does that. And I think he is there with us in the dark, because otherwise the opposite would be just too difficult to accept. I think that, that God is with us, or if you're not spiritual, there's always a friend who is there. There's, or yourself, as Diane said before, to just go deep inside and meditate and think, and you know that the peace will be there. And I think that for my father, I think that, that he came to understand what his path was going to be, and I saw my mother go through some very, very dark periods where she didn't know whether she had OD'd him with morphine, where she, the morning she woke up and and said, your father's in a coma and your cat Missy is dead and your brother's outside waiting for you with a shovel. Go dig a hole and bury your pet. To see my mother at 8 a.m. with a glass of scotch and a cigarette, and that was the way I was greeted, I knew at that moment that she was in an incredibly dark place. Incredible. And that was very difficult to see my parents the one that I'm supposed to be able to go to, to be in that dark place. But you know what? She did hold on. And we got through it, and we got through it together. Even my father, my father's strength in dying got us through his dying. His grace, his his the way he would look at us made the darkness be a little bit lighter because he knew what he was going to. He could give us some of his strength and some of his 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 acceptance because he'd already seen the other side. He was just waiting to be called over.
1: That is so beautiful. Um, I really hate that um, we didn't get a chance to talk about the aspects of of depression that result from separation and and romantic and intimate relationships. And I'm going to ask both of you uh, at the very near future to come back and discuss that. But, Diane, if someone wants to get in contact with you or uh, get some of your reading materials or support your organization or cry out to your organization, how can they read and please repeat the phone number twice or the website twice, please?
0: Yeah, Gladly. Uh, our, my company website, is. my company is Hospice and Healthcare Communications. It's www.hhc, and then the whole word communications. So it's hhc, c-o-m-m-u-n-i-c-a-t-i-o-n-s.com. Or you can email me at diane, d-i-a-n-n-e, at ekrfoundation.org. And that's for the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross Foundation, and you can reach me at either of those. Of course, they can, if, you know, for some reason they can't, they can certainly email you all, and uh, you can connect us.
1: Thank you. Thank you. What about you, Alicia? How can people mm-hmm. reach out and get in contact with you, uh, not only to, um, for the fans of the many artistic and things that you do, but also to talk about this type of subject matter?
3: Um, well, they can follow me on Twitter at Alicia underscore Coppola. That's Alicia underscore Coppola. They can also go to my Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash Gracefully Gone. Um And just like Diane said, um, they can always contact you and put us together. And that Facebook page, hey, page is com slash gracefullygone.
1: Well, I can tell you ladies, uh the hour passed far too quick. I want to thank you both for being uh part of this pro America. I want to just say something and, and well not just something a couple of things and I want this to be from the heart to those that are listening America and abroad. Life and death are a natural process. Transformation takes place when we surrender. What we have known, which is the lesser known, and embrace the greater unknown. If you are going through this situation, be you the be you in person, meaning you're the one with the cancer or the HIV or whatever, or you're being the support system, or just merely the witness. I want you to rest assured that God's ways are not our ways, and His thoughts are not our thoughts and that all things work together for the good of those that not only love God but love themselves and those that we have been surrounded by because everybody in your life is here for a reason. With that said, it's been wonderful, um, and you know I'm going to tell you, while you're out there looking for love, if you can't find someone to love you, love yourself because nobody can do it better than you. This is Dr. D. Von Young. You've been listening to Conversations with Dr. D. Ivan Young. I will talk Sunday night at 7.30. Have an awesome weekend. Bye now.